How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. the nightcap hoop fest this is it's terrible he's very calculating in how he says things i mean it may sound like it's spontaneous it's not i mean he goes into a lot of these things saying okay here's what i'm going to say about this i mean you know think about how much time he had to spend in coming up with the word poop fest i've never heard the word poop fest but that's very creative on wgr can i interest you in a nightcap little throwback open there all right Welcome in. It's my first nightcap of the week. Let's see. Monday, me and Nate Geary were filling in for Shope and the Bulldogs, so you had Derek on Monday. Then Tuesday was the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Yesterday, I was playing at the 11-day power play, so uh, you haven't had me until today. So a lot's happened. A lot's happened since last Friday. You know I'm a big NBA guy. I want to talk a little bit about what Kawhi Leonard did over the past weekend, he basically saved the league for years to come. He might be the biggest good guy in sports right now, Kawhi Leonard. We'll get into that uh, throughout the night. We'll get into a lot of football as we progress as well. There's Melvin Gordon news today. There's Duke Johnson news today, and it's got me thinking about the running back position, position that I've been thinking. That's the position I've been thinking most about when uh, thinking about the Bills this offseason. So I got a trade idea that is, I don't know how realistic it might be, but I think it might be a good idea if the Bills wanted to go to this team and say, hey, we'll do this for this. We'll get into that later on as well. But I wanted to start with hockey because I haven't been on since last Friday, and a lot's happened. Marcus Johansson is now a Sabre. Alex Nylander is no longer a Sabre. Henry Yoki Haru. I've had enough time to practice that name. Yoki Haru. Yoki Haru. Can't wait to see. How some of these uh, these broadcasters uh, like Doc Emmerich, etc., uh, messed that up. But Henry Yoki Haru is a saber now, and let's start there. How amazing is it that they were able to get a good young defenseman like him for Alex Nylander? I mean, that was the guy in the organization for the last few years. Like this is, wasn't new for me. I didn't like him as as an idea for the Sabers when they picked him. But he was here, and I was willing to see that out, and I never saw a sign that made me think he was ever going to be a dynamic top six player like he was drafted to be. Never saw a sign of that. Not in juniors with Mississauga, not at development camp, any of the development camps that he attended, not at any of the prospect tournaments, not even really at the World Juniors, especially the last one that he was at, and not with the Rochester Americans. It just wasn't there. Where was the dynamic ability that got him drafted eighth? He had some good speed. He had some good hands. He had a good shot. But what was he great at? Because those are the three main assets that I think make a great offensive player. And I don't think he was great at any of the three. He was good at all three, but not great. And the motor always seemed to be always on on low. So it just never felt like it was going to work. 
He still had value. How much? That was up for debate. I would have thought, hey, if you're trading Alex Nylander, maybe you get a second-round pick. Maybe you get someone else's struggling prospect. Maybe you get a lower-level veteran player, like the, the, the next Marco Scandella that the Sabres go out and grab. The next Nathan Beaulieu. And he got them something more. And I'm kind of surprised by that. But, hey, here's Chicago. They, I think maybe we should all be thanking Dylan Strome for this. In a funny way. So, Dylan Strome, who was the third overall pick in Eichel's draft, had really had a, a bad career to start. Like, here's Eichel, here's McDavid. McDavid's the MVP of the league. Eichel's a point-of-game player. You got Mitch Marner, who went right after Strome. He's one of the great young players in the league. And... There at number three was Dylan Strome, and he really hadn't done much of anything for the Arizona Coyotes. In Chicago, they trade for him. They bring him in. He's a struggling guy, struggling young player, offensive. They put him with some skilled players, and it worked. He started clicking, and he had a good season last year, and now it looks like they might have something in him. And the experience and the recent, the recent, the by, recency bias that Stan Bowman may have had by just trading for someone else's struggling prospect and seeing that work maybe allowed for him to pay a little bit more than you thought you were going to get for our struggling young struggling young prospect because the fact that they got a good young modern day puck moving defenseman who's 20 years old for Alex Nylander is going to blow my mind forever. He might not even be a great player, Yoki Haru. But he's it seems like the the odds that he's a good to great player versus Nylander, they're very much in the Sabres' favor right now. And you should always feel good when Chicago, when the fans of the other side of the trade are very unhappy with it. The writers and the this, the people who are covering the team on the other side of the trade are scratching their heads because that's what we saw a lot of this week after the Sabres made this deal, after the Blackhawks made this deal. And one other thing on this. I kind of made a bit of a big deal, I think maybe more of a big deal than anybody, that Nylander was not at Sabres development camp a couple weeks ago. And I always thought there was something to it. I didn't think it had to be that Nylander just said, oh, I don't need to go there. I don't need to come. I also didn't think it had to be, oh, he's about to get traded. But it seemed very likely to me that it was one of those two things because the explanation that the Sabres gave, which was just, oh, it's not really a big deal. He didn't have to come, whatever. A lot of guys don't come for another one. But Alex Nylander is not a lot of guys. A lot of top 10 picks don't have the first few years after their draft like Alex Nylander has had. A lot of guys picked in top 10s don't play three AHL seasons and struggle in all three of them. He has, I think he barely had more goals in three AHL seasons than Victor Olofsson had in one AHL season. Like Those were the type of numbers he was having down in Rochester. Nobody in the organization needed more fine-tuning, more time with the coaching staff, and should have wanted to take advantage of every opportunity he could get to make the team like Alex Nylander did. Which is why it made no sense to me that he was not at development camp. Something was up. And as it turns out, last night we find out, hey, 
Guess who's going to Blackhawks development camp? Alex Nylander. So to me, now we're sitting in a place where, you know, it's not a big deal, but I think it's pretty obvious that one of two things happened with the whole Nylander development camp thing. Just to put a wrap a bow on this to, to end it. One of two things happened. Most likely. Nylander either told the Sabres that he didn't need to attend development camp, and the Sabres were upset about it, and said, you know what? That's the last straw. Like this kid's been struggling. He had we have not gotten the production we wanted out of him. He is not what the previous regime certainly thought he was going to be when they drafted him eighth. And now there's already questions about his motor and his attitude and his effort. And now we've got him not when when Tage Thompson, who's played a hundred games in the NHL, is going to this camp. To get as much time with the coaching staff as necessary, to get as much on ice time at with the uh, get as much on ice time before the season starts as possible. When Tage Thompson's doing that, here's Alex Nylander. He's doing something else. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's in Greece. Maybe he's in he's on vacation somewhere. Maybe he's working out on his own. But he's not with you. He's not doing the things you think he needs to work on, or you don't know that. Maybe that was the Sabres' last straw, and they said, you know what, we need to move on. We need to do something here. We need to capitalize on whatever value he has, and let's move Let's move him. That's one thing that could have happened. Or, the Sabres knew they were going to trade him, which is certainly possible. I mean, even before development camp, I think we had Darren Dreger on the station uh, just prior to, it was either prior to the draft or prior to free agency. I think it was prior to the draft, where his name was being talked about in trade circles. So maybe the Sabres had already known that they were having talks with other teams and that they knew there was a very good chance that he was going to be dealt. And they knew, like we all know, or that you could easily find, you can easily look up, he's been hurt in development camp before. He's been hurt at that exact camp. So if you're about to trade him, you're not going to risk an injury by having him do that. So they told him not to come to prevent injury concerns. That also could have happened. But at the end of the day, I think him going to development camp in Chicago just really, I think that really should show that, hey, something was up a couple of weeks ago. But anyways, at the end of the day, an amazing trade in my mind. I'm still surprised they were able to get something as valuable as Yoki Haru for him. He almost kind of reminds me, like, reading about him. I still haven't watched almost any of him. Um, but reading about him, he reads like Mark Pesic in a way. Or at least what Mark Pesic was coming up through the system. I think, ideally, you'd like this kid to be better than what Mark Pesic has become. I mean, Pesic in Florida, if you haven't really been keeping tabs on him, like he's still he's good. He's pretty good. But on, an, on a really good team, he's probably a bottom pair guy. And he, he'll do okay for you as a top four role. But Yoki Haru, his style, his two-way game and the fact that he can be offensive that he's puck he's a puck moving guy he is the prototypical modern day defenseman I think you can be I think it's fair for anybody to be very optimistic about what the Sabres got from the Blackhawks this week very optimistic and one other thing that it's really I think proving true of what Jason Bottrell is doing this offseason there's a plan in place to fix the defense they got a promising young blue liner for a struggling young winner, winger. Any day of the week, by the way, I'll take a defenseman over a winger. If it's equal value, I'll take the defenseman over the winger. 
I mean, it's not completely the same, but I, I get the sense that wingers are becoming not quite what running back is in the NFL, but center and def- and blue line like that. Those that's where your first priority should lie. So even if the the values equal, I'll take the defenseman. And this is something that the Sabers have not done. This is something that Tim Murray never did. Bottrell's doing what Murray never did: fix the blue line. That's been their biggest weakness for six years. And you know what? Bottrell's first fix was similar to what Murray was trying to do. And they were mistakes. Trading mid-level assets for veteran defensemen that aren't very highly thought of by the teams that they're on, like Nathan Beaulieu and Marco Scandella. Why were those guys available? Those teams had a plethora of defensemen in Minnesota's case, and Scandella was the odd man out. And in Montreal... Beaulieu just kind of wore out his welcome. Former first-round pick, maybe even similar to what when Nylander was here. You hoped, your hopes were once high for him, but you see that it's not really happening, so we're going to look for a change of scenery. And you brought those guys in and hope that they could fill in bigger roles for you, and it just didn't work. That's similar to what Tim Murray tried to do. Reminds me of signing Cody Franzen. Reminds me of trading for Josh Georges. Now, what Bottrell has done in the last few weeks He's instead going for a specific style, the modern-day puck-moving defenseman. And in a couple of cases, they're younger, and they're guys that are highly thought of on those other organizations. They're not quick fixes. They're not band-aids you can slap over the problem. Getting Montour, getting Colin Miller, getting Yoki Haru, I think is evidence that this GM is finally, like he. it seems that he gets what needs to happen. At the back end. And now Miller's a veteran, but I I would say unlike Bullu and Scandella, you look at his analytics and his possession numbers and his 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 deeper numbers, he's better in those areas, a lot better in those areas actually, than those two. He's the modern day defenseman. And now I'm sitting here with a plethora of defensemen. A ton of them. I mean, you've heard the list laid out. They've got like six guys on the right. They've got four guys on the left. You've got 10 or 11 defensemen you could conceivably think could play on your NHL team, and you've got to find a way to to get that down to six. And you know a few of them aren't going anywhere. You know Miller's not going anywhere. You just traded for him. You know Montour's not going anywhere. Just traded for him. You know Yoki Haru maybe doesn't start the team or start the year with the team, but you know he's in the organization. You just traded for him. And I think ideally given the way he talked and given the way people are talking about him, he seems ready to take on a full-time NHL role. So I would want to pencil him in for that. I don't think it's, you can. we can quite do that, but I would want to. So that would be three. Dylene, obviously, is the easiest one. That's four. And Pilot's hurt, so he kind of doesn't factor into this quite yet, but I think I want Pilot in my top six. So now what am I talking about? I'm talking about one or two spots that are up for grabs. And I have yet to mention Ristolainen and Bogosian and Scandella and McCabe and Casey Nelson, all of them. All of them. And if if Bottrell's recent moves on the blue line are evidence of anything, it's that he's looking for a different style of defense. And there are four guys on this team right now that don't fit that. Ristolainen does not fit that. I think he can be a serviceable second-pair defenseman. He is not the prototypical modern-day defenseman. He is not a puck mover. His biggest weakness is probably puck moving. 
Watch any sort of film on Rasmus Ristolainen. He gets the puck behind his own net. He gets the puck in his own end, deep in the corners. He he does not pick his head up. He throws it around the boards, hopes his guy is there, or hopes that it gets out of the zone and they can restart. That's his biggest weakness. And there's three other guys on this team that I think are similar and that they're not puck movers. Bogosian, Scandella, and even McCabe. I like McCabe. I think he's a very good third-pair defenseman. I'd like to have him here, but he does not fit that type of player. So my guess would be, that's a group of four players. Ristolainen, Bogosian, Scandella, McCabe. Two of them are gone. At least two, if not three. And the reason it might not be three is Bogosian and Scandella have contracts that are going to be pretty hard to trade, or at least should be pretty hard to trade. And McCabe and Ristolainen would be the ones with value. Ristolainen most likely more so than McCabe. I think at least two of those guys have to be gone by the start of the season. And I, even though I said I like McCabe, I'm not against trading him because I think he could bring you back something nice. Ristolainen, again, I think if you're in your of your best six defensemen, he's one of them. But I'm not keeping him here to play on my third pair, to play 18 minutes a night. When there's got to be teams out there that at least think he's a 22-minute-a-night defenseman and they'll give me something solid back for that. I think it's become clear as day that he's the most likely player on the roster to be traded. And I think those other three that I just mentioned, you can throw their hats in the ring too. I can't see all four of them here. And In fact, the way the numbers are shaping up, there is no way those four are all going to be here. And it's super unlikely the three will. So I like what they're doing. I like what Bottrell's done this offseason. The priorities are lining up. Right? Like, what was... What was the, the trades up front? Wingers, as I said before, I feel like that should be a position that you're starting to be able to find almost anywhere. Late round picks. Trade a mid a third round pick for some other team's guy. Sign him in free agency. Because really what the Sabres have right now, you look at what they have on the wing. Reinhardt, they invested a second overall pick. Okay, that's one. There are other good wingers, all of them. They didn't cost you anything. Reinhardt cost you a second overall pick. That's a lot. Skinner cost you nothing. The contract's a lot, but to trade for him, the, the trade was nothing. Marcus Johansson, two years, 4.5 million. That's almost nothing. That's, that's not that much. Pennies compared to what some other free agents have gotten. So I didn't invest a lot in that. Olofsson was a seventh round pick. He's the winger in the organization you're probably most optimistic about that hasn't quite cracked the roster yet. Seventh round pick. Didn't invest a lot there. Connor Sherry's nice. Would I give up a third for him? VC, 17 goals last year and the year before. Some solid production. Third round pick. Whatever. I like what the Sabres have done here. They're taking their bigger assets, and instead of like what Murray did back in the day, I hate to keep bragging on Murray because I still, he's always a great listen, and I always liked rooted for him as a GM, but obviously his mistakes were are glaring that when you look back. Where did he put some of his biggest assets? How many did he trade for Evander Kane, who's a winger? How many did he trade? And Bottrell, to this point, has not done that for that position. The, the stuff he's trading that's most expensive, first-round picks, uh, Brendan Gooley, Alex Nylander, like your higher-level prospects in the organization, even second-round picks. 
what is what is he trading those for? He's trading them for defensemen. And I think that's the perfect way to go about fixing this team. And I think Bottrell's doing a really good job at it this offseason so far. Still waiting on what they got to do with second line center. It's not over. They need to do something there. And maybe Ristolainen is the key to doing it. But so far, so good, I would say, for the Sabres this offseason. 803-0550, if you have any thoughts on that, we'll take some calls when we come back. And we'll also get to some football uh, as well. Steve Palazzolo was on One Bills Live earlier today. Some really good stuff from him. We'll hear from him as we progress as well. And uh, more of your calls, or we'll get some of your calls in when we come back. 716-803-0550 is the number. Also, on Twitter, at SneakyJoeWGR, or on the text line, 55550. You can get your thoughts through to the show, uh, those routes as well. It's the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase here on WGR. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 I play every role in the area that helps me a lot. I got a lot of power play times. Of course, if you play first power play, you mean you get more comfortable with the game. But if you if you're not even playing power play, it's hard to come in. Like my style defense, man. You want to play power play, but of course, if you're not playing, that's not an issue. But uh, when you always got the five minutes extra time, and it's a little bit easier for you. That is new Saber defenseman Henry Yoki Haru there talking about how he played top pair. Power play defense for uh, Rockford in the AHL last season. And he's another guy now that comes in with uh, some good power play ability. And I think, just to kind of recap and put a bow on uh, our conversation last segment with Ristolainen, if it wasn't, if you couldn't, it couldn't get more clear that he's going to be traded or it's likely that he's traded. A good way to look at it is also what, like, they always needed him to be the top-paired power play guy. They've needed Ristolainen for that role for how many years? Now, I think it's fair to say you've got at least three that outrank him for the for the power play. Darlene, for sure, and Montour and Miller, I would say, and I think even Yoki Haru now, so maybe four. You might have four defensemen now that outrank him uh, on the power play, so... Even if he's here, those minutes are gone, or they should be. So, I, I, at the end of the day, it's maybe not a guarantee he's dealt, but it should absolutely be a guarantee, and I think it's pretty clear it's a guarantee that he is not going to be playing the same role that he's been playing here. So, the two two of the best options for Ristolainen, which is either trade him or reduce his role, one of those is going to happen, at the very least. All right, let's switch into football a little bit now. There's been some big news today in the NFL in that Melvin Gordon is looking for a new contract, running back for the Chargers, and that if he doesn't get it, he's either going to demand a trade, and he's also going to, I should say, and he's also going to hold out of training camp for the Chargers if he does not get that deal. And this is not a player I'm a big fan of. I mean, three, four years in the NFL, three of which he has been under... Perform. He has underperformed what his draft status was. He's been below average. Three of four years under four yards of carry. Four yards of carry is average in the league. It's not even great. It's all right. 
And he couldn't even crack that. Last year he did. 5.1 yards per carry. He had a very good season last year. But, I mean, one great year and you're, he wants to be paid like a, like a superstar running back. He's not that type of player to me. Um, I don't think the Chargers should, should sign him. If I were them, I would trade him. I pray the Bills won't be the team that trades for him. If somebody does, I don't think they would. But um, this is not a player that I'm, I think, very highly of. And I think he's kind of been overrated th- through the first four years of his career just because the Chargers, they keep slamming the ball down his throat. They keep giving it to him and giving it to him and giving it to him. So the volume makes it look like, oh, look, he had, he had 1,600 yards total last year. Yeah, but he he got the ball like 600 times. So I don't know. How good really is he? So uh, that happened today. Duke Johnson's name is back in the news. And, of course, the Bills have an interesting uh, little uh, backfield that they've got going on here. So running back is uh, maybe the position that's being most talked about in the league right now. For more on that, and I got a trade idea that I'm going to come back with uh, in a little bit because I'm thinking about how do the Bills make make over their running back group for the future because we've got McCoy, we've got Gore, you've got Yeldon, but who's here past this season? Singletary's the only name for that right now. Who else is going to be joining him? And I think I got one idea that might help that uh, help that along. Before that, though, some really good analysis here from Steve Palazzolo, Pro Football Focus, was on with One Bills Live earlier today. Here is Steve with the guys. Pleased to welcome in the Pro Football Focus senior analyst, also an NFL draft and college football analyst, and the host of the Pro Football Focus podcast, Steve Palazzolo. Steve, you're on with Steve Tasker, Chris Brown here on One Bills Live. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, one of the first things i got to ask you is you guys must get – I mean, you must know that – Fans go crazy, and maybe some players and some football people go crazy too. When you release rankings of players and how you rate them and some of the analytics that you go through, how much pushback do you get from actual players in the league about your rating and their ability to produce? We get a lot of feedback. Uh, some is pushback, and some is uh, you know people patting us on the back. It really depends on where the grades are. But um, you know we've heard many stories about you know, how much players care, uh, you know, what they, you know, they check them on Monday morning when they get into the building. And, uh, you know, we've definitely gotten pushback when people don't necessarily uh, agree with their grades. So, uh, you know, it's been all over the place. And I think it just kind of comes with the territory because we're doing something unique and something different by trying to grade every single player on every play. And, and Steve, how challenging is it when it comes to, you know, getting the metrics for offensive linemen, knowing that, there are many cases where they're operating as a group. Um, maybe you guys may not know everyone's assignment on that line, on that given play. So how do you kind of get through the weeds of all of that to try to get an accurate measurement of a lineman's play? Uh, so I don't think it's that difficult as far – because you, have, you just have to look at the game at, at, at a kind of a wide lens view. You know, there's a lot of nuance that goes to the game. You know, you know guys that have played the game obviously – understand how much you spend the entire week preparing to go execute 60 plays, 70 plays. I mean, it's uh, very nuanced, right? But once the ball is snapped, for the most part, I can tell if the right tackle is going to be down blocking on power and he's declined to the second level to go get the, to, to go get the linebacker. And uh, the fact that we're evaluating these players on 1,000 snaps during the season, even if we do – uh, mess a few up, you know, or you know, miss you know, miss a couple things, or miss some of that nuance. Um, it's still 
uh, going to get you in the ballpark at the very least. We've never claimed perfection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if a guy looks really bad on a play and there's even a chance that, say, the left guard was supposed to help him and he was expecting help, we're not going to downgrade a guy by guessing. We're just, you know, if, if there is something that we truly can't find because of uh, or figure out because of it's, it's a gray area, uh, we don't have to crush a guy. And, and you know, we could say, hey, you know, the, the, the scheme screwed up or there was a miscommunication, so we're not going to uh, downgrade. So we take... Uh, you know, a lot of pride in getting it as right as we possibly can. We acknowledge that it might not be perfect, but then, um, you know, we've got some smart math guys too, taking all this raw data and pushing it into, uh, you know, the final grade. That in, and they know not to necessarily focus on the extremes. They can kind of smooth it out a little bit and, you know, mitigate some of the errors, so to speak. We're talking to Steve Palazzolo, Pro Football Focus Senior Analyst. I'm going to ask you, too, we've got this debate going on today about the future of the feature running back in the National Football League. Certainly it's a, it's a position that has been somewhat changed over the years. It's evolved into as much of a pass-catching position as anything, but it still has that element of pass protection in it. And you've got certain guys who are committed and have the ability to do all of it very well. And then you've got specialists – as well, so from one team to the next, how do you uh, eva- do you evaluate each skill set separately, or is there a metric for wrapping it all into one package and rating these guys top to bottom? Yeah, so when we grade, we're just looking at what a guy did, what he was asked to do, and then after the fact, you can kind of add context to it. So if you have a guy like Duke Johnson that you know runs 300 routes in a season and only carries the ball 75 times or whatever it is, you just kind of weigh those things. Differently, I think the running back position as a whole, though, the more our numbers dig in, we see that um, they are a little interchangeable when it comes to the overall production. You know, just looking at run game production, the most important parts of just gaining yards on running plays, uh, the running back is fourth or fifth on the list of the most important component from what we've seen. So run blocking is more important. The opposing defense just skill level is more important the quality of your pass game is actually more important than the actual running back. So if you have a running back that goes to New England where teams have to worry about Tom Brady throwing the ball, you know, those running backs generally perform better. That's why yeah. you see no eight-man boxes, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So, and, and that's the other one, box count. You know, if you have a quarterback who can simply count, hey, I've got six blockers, there's five guys in the box, run the ball, uh, something as simple as that affects rushing production. So that's why I think there's – a difference in skill level with running backs. You know, Zeke Elliott and Saquon Barkley, they're spectacular, but their output is not going to, you know, be proportional to their skill, so to speak. And that's why I think it's the most interchangeable position in the NFL these days. And if you are going to get a guy, you do want that guy that can affect the pass game, create mismatches, you know, take advantage of linebackers in one-on-one situations because it is a a pass-first NFL. And while, Steve, I'm sure there might be some hard number type metrics that you guys use there are also so many of those if then kind of metrics that you know you just outlined to a certain extent based on the quarterback you have how much respect his passing game gets from an opposing defense things of that nature my question though is you know you guys are always trying to keep it fresh on your site you know new metrics or things that you want to examine closer and develop a metric for how do you guys go into the lab so to speak and maybe come up with that hot new metric measurement that might gain a lot of momentum and draw eyeballs to your site? How do you guys kind of brainstorm and come up with the hot new metric this season or for next season, you know, if it's still in the, in the development phase, so to speak? Well, it, it's a good question because at, at PFF, we are, we, there's, there's different branches to what we do. We grade every player 
in the NFL, and we also have all 32 teams as clients. We grade every player in college football at the FBS level, and we have 60-plus uh, college clients. So a lot of those teams are just using us for our database and the ease of access of what, what, it, what it brings to the table. But we've also added some really smart math guys who understand football. I mean, former college tight ends who have math degrees. So versatile skill sets. They understand the game, and they understand math. And you know, a lot of what they do is just explore the numbers um, and come up with stuff like, you know what, if you had to choose a good coverage unit versus a good pass rush unit, you would take the better coverage unit. You know, And that's a little counterintuitive to what uh, people in the NFL might think, where you have to build in the trenches and rush the passer. But the Bills are actually a great example of a team that has been uh, really one of the best coverage teams in the NFL the last two seasons. And I think despite having inconsistent offense, that's why they've been in so many games and they've uh, you know, just been a difficult team to play, and that you know brings some hope for next year. So um, it's a lot of just not going in with trying to find something. It's just going in and letting the numbers kind of tell the story. And if it backs up a narrative, great. And if it debunks a narrative, then that's great as well. One our goal is to just teach teams and fans how to, you know, I think understand the game and understand efficiency. Talking about the Bills specifically once more, I know Lorenzo Alexander was in your top five for 2018 production at the linebacker position. Obviously, a, a, um, you know, 17, his first year under McDermott, he was off the ball a ton in comparison to where he was in 16 when he was a pro bowler under Rex Ryan. So what do you think helped him most in 18 because obviously he was a bigger part of their pass rush package this past year as opposed to his first year when as I said he was off the ball a ton so how do you guys kind of factor in those things in terms of how they're used within their scheme yeah we can only really grade what they do as I said earlier so you look at uh, Alexander last year rushed the passer 239 times and had 38 total pressures you know we grade each one of those rushes individually. Did you win? How quickly did you win? And he did a fantastic job rushing the passer. He was solid. And when he did drop into coverage, he had 133 snaps there. He was good there as well. Even if it is, you know, know, around the line of scrimmage type of responsibility, he's playing curl flat and he needs to just keep the ball in front of him. He did a good job of that. Limited big plays when he was in coverage. Also picked up those two interceptions and three other pass breakups. So uh, it's tough because our grade doesn't necessarily say this is what the player is. It says this is what the player did. And then, uh, again, what we found mathematically is what a player did usually points you in the right direction of what they will do. It's just a matter of figuring out uh, the right component. So Lorenzo Alexander, one of the more fascinating players in the NFL because you don't see a whole lot of players that are true linebackers rush the passer, and you don't see a whole bunch of guys that can rush the passer playing coverage as efficiently as he did. This past season. We're talking to Steve Palazzolo, Pro Football Focus Senior Analyst. I had one question about Jerry Hughes. You had you had um, ranked him as having an extremely productive 2018 season, being getting pressure as consistently as almost every anybody in the National the Football pressure League. Pressure rate, right? That yeah. was the metric. Yeah. But he also he only had seven sacks. So how do you how do you uh, square that? And I'm not I'm not saying you're a PR guy that you have to do this for the players, but. How does a how do fans should fans digest the fact that they got a guy who's really supposed to be this elite pass rusher and he has an okay season with just like seven sacks, whereas a guy like Aaron Donald has like twenty sacks? And the big difference there is between you know Jerry Hughes being ranked higher than anybody else uh, as a as a defensive lineman as a defensive lineman and only hitting seven sacks, and you got other guys that aren't rated as highly that end up with fifteen sacks. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's one of the best things that we do. I mean, you, even just the difference between seven 
and 15 is 8. That's my quick math right there. So if you have a 15-sack guy and a 7-sack guy, the difference between those guys is 8 plays per year if you're only looking at sacks. But Jerry Hughes rushed the pass for 397 times last year. So it's actually doing him a disservice to only focus on 7 sacks. We actually had him with 8 because we don't uh, half sacks. Uh, we don't believe that they're real. If you get to the quarterback, you get to the quarterback, you get full credit. Half sacks only exist because the NFL wants them to add up. It's not actually a better measure of player evaluation. But he had 54 hurries, which was a career high. He had 12 QB hits, which is a career high. What we found with pass rushers is we give them credit when they win and they win quickly, and that's actually the more difficult thing to do. So once the, once the, once the block is won, whether or not it becomes a sack or not is very dependent on whether or not the QB got rid of the ball or whether or not you had another teammate get pressure as well so that you don't have the quarterback easily escaping. So sacks are very dependent on other situations uh, for much of the time. There's cleanup sacks. There are pursuit sacks. So isolating a pass rusher to one number, I think, does them a disservice when they play 600, 700, 800 uh, snaps. Hughes, on a snap-for-snap basis, that was the best season that he had rushing the passer last year because he won often and he won quickly, which is the most difficult thing for a pass rusher to do, which is why we quantify it in that way. And that's one of the interesting things about it. People say, well, these guys don't know what they're looking at, but it really comes down to the basic facts of it. And, and, I, and you're right, uh, Adding, if you win and you win quickly and you sack the quarterback, you don't need to share that sack with somebody else who also did it, but you should both right. get a sack. And I, and I think uh, when you look at players and how they produce, that's the way they see it and that's the way teams look at yeah. it. As well, um, Steve Palazzolo, Pro Football Focus senior analyst, and that's why I like some of the creative metrics that you guys do come up with. Whether it's elusive rating for a running back, like just this past week, you had Robert Foster at the top of the AFC East for passer rating when targeted. Like people hear passer rating, and all they think about is quarterback. You guys kind of turned that on its ear and applied it at the opposite end of the play. Um, you know what kind of precipitates. That kind of thinking, Steve, with your group to, you know, put a number up like that for a receiver instead of a quarterback. Yeah, it's all about just adding context. You know, we put grades out and we put stats. We we truly believe that the grade, uh, because of the detail that we go into, uh, we do think that the grade is the best uh, descriptor of what a guy did on the field. We, We care deeply about how well they take on blocks, defeat blocks, beat coverage. Uh, we care deeply about giving the quarterback credit when he makes a great throw and it's dropped. Uh, it doesn't show up in the box score, but it shows up in your PFF grade. So we think the grade is best, but we think the stats are just also great ways to add context. Where did the grade come from? Uh, how productive was a receiver when he was targeted? All those types of things. So all we're trying to do is you know, uh, highlight the best players, sometimes the worst players as well, uh, but really just add the proper context. Uh, that describes what they actually did on the field, something like passer rating, just showing the receiver. Again, it's not the perfect metric, but it's just a way to highlight here, here's how productive you know, the passing offense was when Robert Foster was targeted. Up until you guys existed at Pro Football Focus, nobody else really watched film except coaching staffs and team guys who actually had skin in the game, coaches, players, and the kind of people involved with the teams. Now that you've got this separate group that pro football focus who watches as much film as anybody anywhere do you guys notice a trend yeah do you guys notice a trend coming in the nfl that maybe fans aren't aware of do you see something coming down the pipeline in schematics or personnel distribution or things like that that maybe fans aren't aware of that you could uh, that maybe might come in handy for say like a fantasy football guy who's drafting players and because of this trend he wants to go in a different direction 
Well, I was going to mention offensive line, but that's not going to help too many fantasy players. <laughs> you can go there. You, them, you can certainly talk about offensive line. Well, I think one of the most interesting things is our ability to, say, quantify the blind side left tackle versus a right tackle. I truly believe in today's NFL the right tackle is just as valuable as the left tackle. I think that the blind side in general is essentially a fallacy because if the QB is looking to his left, the right tackles all of a sudden you know, protect his blind side. And QBs, they don't just throw to their right anymore. It's not, you know... It's not peewee football. It's not old school football where every team was, you know, righties throw to their right. Therefore, the blind side is protected by the left tackle. So I think uh, the NFL has started to catch on to this a little bit. You don't need to completely overpay left tackles, and then you don't put your big slow, uh, slow-footed guy over at right tackle anymore. Those those guys have to block Von Miller and Khalil Mack and uh, Cameron Wake and some of the pest pass rushers in the NFL. So I think that's the biggest thing I've seen is just the importance of both tackle positions. And then the idea that you don't necessarily need an elite offensive line, you just really don't want a bad offensive line because when you have holes up front, it can really cripple an offense. But if you can at least just be uh, league average is, is something that I think is just a very valuable commodity in the NFL. Average isn't exciting, but for an offensive line, if you could just not have too many glaring holes, you can get by, I think, as, uh, as an offense. And not to try to unearth any of your state secrets there at PFF, Steve, but when how fine do you guys cut it in terms of properly weighting things, and I'll go back to receiver just because it's easy for me to do this, but you know, you talk about a guy like Robert Foster and you calculate his passer rating when targeted, but a lot of times when he's getting targeted, it's 15, 20 yards downfield. You compare him against a guy like Cole Beasley, he's getting, I would say, it's probably safe to say, higher percentage throws more often because he's working a lot of those underneath areas. So how do you guys kind of weight one receiver to the next when you're talking about a deep, a true deep threat like a John Brown or a, or a Robert Foster here against a guy like Cole Beasley who's probably catching five- to eight-yard pass routes as opposed to those guys which you can argue are, are trying to pull in lower percentage throws? Yeah, so that's a good question as well. I think it, it's difficult to compare players, even though we're in the business of putting numbers on players and, and fans want to compare them immediately, and we put out lists that compare them. Ultimately, if you're trying to build a team, it's about you know getting the right skill set. So um, you compare Cole Beasley against other slot receivers. You compare yeah. John Brown against other deep threats. You know, so you do want to add, and that's where our database. You know, we get 200 data points plus per play, and you just sort through those and you figure out, okay, give me all the receivers that were targeted 15 plus. Give me all the guys that are targeted in that three to eight yard range. Who are the best? And a lot of that stuff points you in the right direction of being able to sort that stuff out. But that's one of the things I liked about the Bills. It's not that John Brown is great or that Cole Beasley is great, but they bring two distinct skill sets to the table and much-needed skill sets to the table, and that's helping uh, you know, put a good supporting cast around Josh Allen as he develops. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Steve, if, if you're going to do that and you, and you combine skill sets and you certainly you, you combine you know, pass-catching running backs and and running running backs and that kind of thing, are there players at certain positions that jump out and rank highly? Like, for instance, Saquon Barkley, the number two overall pick in last year's draft, seems to be one of those generational talents. Do you see that jump out in your analytics, or is it just from – do we just take it for granted this guy can do a lot of things well? How, how, do you quantify that, and do you have players, say, for instance, at running back and at tight end who filter to the top in every category? Yeah, I mean, Saquon is, is definitely fantastic. You know, going back to my previous point about running back, as great as he is, it's tough for him to have a huge impact on the team, even though he's great in the right areas, too. You know, the, uh, as, a, as a pass catcher, and the, the guy that can create mismatches, 
I think a guy like Tariq Cohen is underrated because he's so good in the pass game, and the Bears uh, gave him a chance to be so good in the pass game. James White in New England, I know Bills fans obviously familiar with what he does with Tom Brady. Those pass-catching running backs, I think, um, are, are fantastic. And then at tight end, you know, Rob Gronkowski's retiring, but he was the guy that was uh, truly generational because he was a top-five run blocker and, and the best receiving tight end in the NFL uh, throughout his career. I think a guy like George Kittle, though, from the San Francisco 49ers, had a breakout year last year. He's a great receiver, but a fantastic run blocker as well. So he's more versatile than, say, a Travis Kelsey, a Zach Ertz, guys that aren't as good in the run game. Um, so I think Kittle's probably that next guy that has that good all-around skill set, that old-school throwback tight end type of player. Steve, uh, last one for me, and this, is, this has nothing to do with football. It has probably more to do with your process. With all the film that you guys have to digest and view and with all the numbers you have to crunch you know, in your various programs, is there any employee at PFF that does not have a corrective lens prescription? <laughs> Our guy that started this whole thing over in England, believe it or not, he, he developed the system and he advanced the system. He graded every game back when they started in 2008. He is, he's fast. He knows football. He's really good at it. And he has terrible eyesight. Really, really terrible eyesight. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's not great for the eyes. We've got a lot of work to do. Steve Palazzolo, Pro Football <laughs> Focus Senior Analyst. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on One Bills Live with us. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, guys. There he is. Steve just wrapped it up there, saying who it was, Steve Palazzolo. Um, good stuff from him. If you missed any part of, part of that, it's on demand at WGR550.com. Stemming from that, and the Melvin Gordon news today, and the Duke Johnson news today. I got a trade idea for the Bills. I think if you've listened to me enough, you won't be that surprised by it. And I may have even mentioned it uh, once before, but it's something I would like to see the Bills uh, do if they could get their hands on this player. 8030550 is the phone number. We'll take some calls when we come back as well. It's the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase here on WGR. WGR. Uh, give me the offensive lineman for the Packers who was last introduced during pregame introductions. Kramer. Not as incorrect. That's a good guess, Kramer, because, you know, he was on that line. So it's not Kramer, and it's not Forrest Gregg, and it's not Thurston. So there's only a couple more. Time to relax and rewind. Rick, the final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions in Super Bowl One. Howard Simon. No, it's not him. There's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's not safe. One more. It's not Kramer. It is not Bill Curry. It is not Howard Simon. Um, Forrest Gregg. No, I said it's not Forrest, damn it. It's not Forrest Gregg. It is not Kramer. It it's is the not... best of WGR. This is the garbage you give me. Zach, who's the lineman? And I'm going to say Bill Curry. No, I just said it was about Curry, David. The Nightcap on WGR Sports Radio 550. Yay! Yay! Welcome back to the Nightcap. So Duke Johnson is a name we've talked about a lot. Melvin Gordon's name is now in the news. Don't worry, I'm not about to say the Bills should trade for Melvin Gordon. In fact, that'd be the worst idea in the world that I could think for them right now. To get a guy who wants to be paid like a superstar running back and has only been above average in yards per carry once in four years. I think he's a very I think he's one of the more overrated players in the league. I think he's okay. He's good, but not worth what he's gonna cost trade-wise, salary-wise, what you'd have to give him in carries. Just a bad idea. And if I were the Chargers, I would get out of that 
as quick as possible. Because um, that's a bad situation brewing. Anyways, Duke Johnson to me, though, is a player who is interesting. And he changed agents today. Which is interesting. Think about the spot he's in. He, for over a year now, running back for the Browns, he has been trying to get out of Cleveland. And I don't think it's a, he hates Cleveland, he wants to be in a bigger city, so, oh, why would he ever come to Buffalo type of thing. It seems like he just doesn't want to be there because there are two guys who are clearly ahead of him to get touches. Nick Chubb, second-round pick, who was really good last year, and Kareem Hunt, who once he comes back, I mean, you saw the talent in Kansas City. He's going to warrant getting touches as well, and Duke Johnson's kind of buried underneath. And not only are those two guys going to be there for touches, but they're both younger players who could be a part of that backfield for a very long time. And here's Duke Johnson, 25 years old. I mean, you're running back in the league. you got like maybe three, four, five years left unless you're a superstar. And his career, it's, it's getting there. He's been in the league for four years. It's half over. And I could see why he would want to go to a, a spot that would... You know, the door to being the starter would be a, would be more open. And here's the Bills. And while they don't have the perfect setup for him because there are so many backs here, Gore, McCoy, Singletary, uh, Yeldon, like he would just be a part of a large group of players. But if I'm the Bills, I might want to see if Cleveland is interesting interested in a LaShawn McCoy for Duke Johnson swap. I'm not sure if McCoy would carry the type of value that Cleveland would be looking for, but I could see why that would be intriguing to them. Because what are you going to get for Duke Johnson? Are you going to get a fourth-round pick? Are you going to get a fifth-round pick? That's fine. But if I'm Cleveland, like it's go time. I'm good. I've got the quarterback. I've got a superstar receiver. i got a really good number two receiver. I've got two really good running backs, one of which is suspended, but i got two really good running backs. I've got a pretty good defense. I've got a pretty good offensive line. There's no reason why they shouldn't be good this season. And one thing that they would kind of be losing out on if they trade Duke Johnson is they would be very thin at running back if they do that at least for the first eight weeks until Kareem Hunt returns. They'd be really thin at running back. If Chubb were to go down, I'm not even sure who the next name on the list is if you don't have Duke Johnson there. So maybe that, I could totally see why that's part of their hesitation. Hey, if we trade Duke Johnson now and Nick Chubb gets banged up, who do we go to? Who do we turn to? And I wonder if the Bills are serious about getting something back for McCoy and if Cleveland might be, you know, a little enticed to bring on McCoy. He doesn't really make sense for them past eight weeks, but for the first eight weeks he does, for sure. And that's really when those are the most important games for Cleveland. You're trying to get off the ground. You're trying to you're trying to get a head start in that race with Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Every game's gonna matter in that division this year. So I could see why they would be interested in it, and I think for the Bills, it's a no-brainer because you're getting a running back who's five years younger. You're getting a guy who was more product, more productive last season, and I, I just think it, it kind of makes sense. I think the biggest thing you'd have to convince is you have to convince Cleveland that it, that's worth it, but maybe it would be. That's a bad situation that they got going on there. There was already some things going on with Mayfield calling Duke Johnson out, and then the teammates got in to do it with Baker Mayfield in the locker room about it. So it's just a bad situation brewing there that I think they could see them want to get themselves out of it. And even if the Bills had to throw in 
uh, a, a later round pick. Whatever. I would want to see them try to acquire that player, but I wouldn't want to see them try to acquire that player without giving one of their running backs back right now. Because I think Cleveland should want one, and I think the Bills, you just, you'd have way too many. You just have way too many. Way too many. So I would want to see if they're interested in one of my guys just to hold down the fort for eight weeks in a tandem with Nick Chubb. And in the meantime, I'm going to bring back a younger guy who could be a part of my future, who could be a part of my backfield for longer than just one year. Because as it stands right now, and this is an easy position to make over, teams do it every year. So I'm not that worried about it. But the way it's set up now is you have one guy on this roster that I think you can count on being here past one season. And if you were to bring in Duke Johnson, then you'd have two. And now we're really talking about some a, a really good weapon uh, out of the backfield that you know is going to be good in the pass game at least uh, to help out Josh Allen. 8030550 is the phone number if you've got any thoughts on that. We're going to take a timeout now. We'll continue talking some football uh, here on the nightcap. I got another... Uh, Another topic to get to, though, on the NBA, because we have yet to, I've yet to talk NBA since the last weekend happened, since Kawhi Leonard completely changed the dynamic of the league by himself. It's amazing that one player had as much power and as much say in what direction your league is going to go, not even your team, what direction the league is going to go in for years to come by one decision. No other individual in sports possessed the power that Kawhi Leonard had, and he did, I mean, he did some great justice to the league, and I think that they've got some great years coming because of what he did. I'll expand on that when we come back. It's the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase here on WGR. That's the business of it, you know. Um, it is it is what it is. You, you you put yourself in a position to go somewhere for a, a long period of time, and it may not be what it is a year later, and, and that's the business. And I've come to realization of that, and I understand that. So whatever situation I'm in, I, I know the business side of it. So we'll just see. I can't, I can't predict it. That is Warriors guard D'Angelo Russell, who was part of the sign-and-trade that sent Kevin Durant to the Nets in free agency and Russell to the Warriors. And he gets a big deal to go there. All-star last season. He keeps the Warriors, I think, uh, in the title conversation. I don't think they're near the favorites, but they're in it. Um, there was an interesting story that came out on that today, too. Durant, this this guy, man, is so, so weird. He, he made the Warriors send a first-round pick to the Nets in their sign-and-trade that essentially got him more money because he didn't like he didn't think that the that he was worth just what they were giving up. Like he he thought the trade was unfair. Even though the two teams had agreed on it, he said, Nope, this trade's not fair. You need to throw in a first round pick. Durant did that. So, man, if that's not evidence, by the way, that what power players have in the league where a guy who's just tore his Achilles has that type of power. The NBA is unlike any other league in that respect. And Kawhi Leonard is the biggest example of a player having power that I've ever seen in what happened last weekend. He changed the dynamic of the NBA for years.
on one decision where he was going to sign. In my mind, he saved the NBA on Saturday. And he's now the ultimate good guy in sports. I'm going to root for him just because of it. I mean, think about how, like, he's the ultimate good guy in sports. He's quiet. It's a quiet, humble personality. He doesn't really care about the spotlight. And look at what he's done the last five years. They should call him the breaker of dynasties. He ended the Heat dynasty. When he beat the when he beat them uh, and was finals MVP and LeBron left for Cleveland. Heat was done. He ended the Warriors dynasty. Yeah, they were injured, but he was the best player on the Raptors, final MVP. He ended the Warriors. Done. He ended the Spurs dynasty too. I mean, they were good for 20 years. And he said, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm done. And guess you know, the Spurs might not even be a playoff team this year. That was a 20-year thing. They were being compared to the Patriots. Over. Because of Kawhi. He ended the Laker dynasty before it even got started. He could have gone there. And they would have been a dynasty. They would have been easily the favorite for the next 3-4 years. With him on that team. Could have gone there. Could have dominated the NBA for 4 years. And he walked away from... Basically guaranteed legend status. He's already going to get it. But that was a guarantee if he goes there. But... I don't think this is why he did it, but the league's parity in the NBA would have been ruined had he gone to the Lakers the same way it was when Durant chose Golden State. And instead of taking that same easiest route I can find that Durant chose, Kawhi, who could have got away got away with that better than Durant did because he's won two championships and he was the best player on those two championship teams, instead... After winning in Toronto, winning a title that he very well could have sat out like he did with the Spurs. He could have pouted and said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be playing here. I don't care that they traded me here. I'm going to do what I did last year. I'm just going to go home and I'll, I'll see you in free agency. No, he, he went there. He won them a championship. Then in free agency, he goes home without taking the easiest route. He could have gone home and also took the easiest route possible. But instead, he goes to the Clippers. And now, instead of one super team in the NBA, and I'm not saying Kawhi did this on purpose, but I'm saying the power that his one decision had, this is what changed. Instead of one super team and a bunch of hopefuls that basically would have needed injuries to the Lakers or, you know, just the Lakers fighting with each other every other day, needing that to happen, we have a bunch of teams with great duos and maybe there might be 10 teams in the league that could win the championship this year that's not something the NBA ever has that's something hockey has that's something the NFL has more that's something Major League Baseball has that's the one thing the NBA hasn't had is parity but now they have that and a lot of people are saying oh the ratings are going to go down interest is going to go down you don't have that super team you don't have that super team but really when you think about it And this is amazing because this all happened because Kawhi Leonard chose the Clippers and not the Lakers. Because of Kawhi Leonard's decision, the playoffs just got more interesting. The regular season got more interesting. Trade deadline more interesting. Free agency next year more interesting. Everything's more interesting. Because now, it's not just the Warriors that can win it. And if he had signed with the Lakers, it would have just been basically, hey, the Lakers could win it or maybe the Bucks and the Sixers can win it. And that's about it. Three teams. Durant's hurt with the Nets when he comes back, maybe. But you got three teams that can win it this year. Instead, 
10 teams. Clippers, Lakers, Bucks, Sixers, Nets, Celtics, Nuggets, Jazz, Rockets, Warriors, Blazers. Really any of those teams, you could conceivably win it. It might be a long shot to say, hey, Portland could win it, or even Golden State with their injuries could win it, or Brooklyn could win it this year without Durant. But it's not impossible like it used to be. It's not. It would not surprise me if any of those top dozen teams in the league, it wouldn't surprise me if any of them won a championship in the next three years. And that is something the NBA has not had in years, and that is something they only have now because of Kawhi Leonard. Because of what he chose to do. Duos all over the place now. You got LeBron and AD with the Lakers. You've got Kawhi and Paul George with the with the Clippers. You've got uh, Durant and Kyrie with Brooklyn. You've still got Clay and Steph in Golden State. They're all over the place. You still got Chris Paul and James Harden in Houston. Denver's got their guys. Brook or Utah and Denver aren't going to be like, I don't think, super popular teams, but they're teams that could easily win the championship this year. I was seeing rankings earlier that had them in the top five. And, man, we have Kawhi Leonard to thank for it. 8030550 is the phone number. We're going to switch back into football when we come back. Um, but actually, before I do that, before I do get away from basketball, I did rank my top 10 NBA teams. And if anyone's interested, I'll do that real quick uh, right here because we've reached a point, too, where a top 10 ranking is actually interesting because you could have any of these teams in different spots. I got the Clippers 1, the Lakers 2, the Bucks 3. I don't have a lot of East teams in here. This is for this year. Um, the Bucks 3, the Jazz 4, Nuggets 5. Like I said, those teams won't be super popular choices, but you look at their teams. I mean, they're stacked. The Sixers 6, I like them, but there's just not a lot of shooting there. They're built to beat Milwaukee. I think they could actually beat Milwaukee because they're... Milwaukee is Giannis, the Greek freak. He's just huge. And you can only stop him with size. And not only do the Sixers have size, they have good size. Like Horford and Embiid and Simmons, the point guard. Like, they're great. They just don't have enough shooting. I think they can beat Milwaukee, but what happens when they play one of the L.A. teams? I think they get maybe smoked just because they can't shoot. The Warriors at 7, everyone's discounting them. It's still going to be Steph and Clay. Clay's going to come back. And D'Angelo Russell's the perfect signing for that. He keeps them afloat. He's an all-star player. He's not a superstar like the other two, but he's an all-star level player. He will keep them afloat until Klay Thompson comes back. Which he will. Torn ACL, and that guy, more respect to him than... He's on that, that top tier of athletes that I respect the hell out of. Because of some of the injuries they've played through. He's one guy who tried to run back onto the court for Golden State with a torn ACL. He actually hit two free throws with a torn ACL. He wanted to stay on that court. He was mad when they called timeout and took him out. And there's very few athletes that have done that. Phillip Rivers has done that. Conor McGregor, Joe Thornton, add him to the list. So he'll be back. Don't worry. The Rockets are still in it. Portland. Uh, the Rockets I have eight, by the way. Portland I have nine. And I have the Nets ten. The Nets, too. Everyone's discounting them this year, but they're basically the same team last year, which was a playoff team that gave Philly some trouble, and they upgraded their best player. They went from D'Angelo Russell to Kyrie Irving. So even if Durant doesn't come back, that's still a really good team. Any of those teams could win the championship. Any of them. Maybe not Brooklyn this season, but they could in the next couple years. That's a great place. The NBA is in such a great place right now. And the one thing that some of those other leagues had over them is uh, they have it too. Parody. 
Anyways, like I said, we'll get back into football when we return. Uh, the Bills training camp is only a little over two weeks away, and there's going to be position battles. The, there's no quarterback competition this year, but every other position on offense has it, except center. Whatever. Do we need a center battle? Every other position on offense has it. So while there's no quarterback competition, we're still going to have a lot of uh, stuff to talk about, and it's going to be on the offense, which will be interesting. 8030550 is the phone number. It is the nightcap. And a little 11-day power play recap, too, because I had fun doing that yesterday. Jody Biasi here on WGR. Well, I mean, I talk NBA for five minutes, and it already uh, dated itself. Because there's been a Woj bomb in the NBA. Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reports that the Oklahoma City Thunder are trading Russell Westbrook to the Houston Rockets for Chris Paul. First round picks in 2024 and 2026. Those seem like so far in the future. And then pick swaps in 2021 and 2025. All right. That does not really change my rankings, I guess. But, man, the NBA is crazy. Russell Westbrook traded to the Houston Rockets, if that interests you. Woj bomb. Twitter went down earlier. How, I, man. I, I mean, I went through some sort of withdrawal when that happened. So I come in, I do the updates right at 3 o'clock, and every time I come into work, the first thing I do is I go to Twitter because I'm not really on my phone a lot in the morning, a little bit, so there's stuff that I usually miss, and I go to Twitter, and I'm like, all right, what did I miss? What did I miss news-wise that I can put in this update that I can talk about later on the show, um, that I can find audio for for the afternoon show, and Twitter goes down. And I swear it's like I didn't know how to, how to function. It's like I rely so much on it, not just for social media, but for sports news. Like, where did we go for sports news before? And I'm like, oh, Google. I'll just, I'll look up, I still have the internet. I just don't have Twitter. I'll do Google. Sports Center doesn't really exist anymore, so it's not like I just pop on ESPN and see, you got the ticker at the bottom, but it's not like Sports Center's got the rundown and they're going top story by top story by top story. It's a lot more discussion talk. It's a lot more debate talk. And that's kind of the revolution that's happened at ESPN. So I'm like, where am I? Where am I going to go for all this? Where? So I had to kind of, but that's just a, sh- a sign of, man, how much we're using Twitter this these days, not just for social media, but like for sports news. And these social media sites that kind of come and go, like MySpace, because MySpace is really the only one so far. But Twitter to me will have the most longevity just because of that, because. Even outside of the the connecting and the the social media part of it, and and you know linking up with friends and all of that part, the news aspect it's more it's so immediate, it's right there, it's so easy that I think that alone is kind of why the obsession has grown with me and I'm sure a lot of other people. Um, anyways, I wanted to talk football in this segment because the Bills and are uh, they're they're closing in on training camp and. There's less buzz of for this training camp than last season, and that's a, pre- a pretty obvious reason why. I mean, Josh Allen was just picked 
seventh overall, highest ever. The Bills have picked a quarterback, and they had two other guys here, and they had a three-way quarterback competition coming, which is just, I mean, open the floodgates for discussion when that happens. When you have a three-way quarterback competition, I don't care who the three are, open it up. Everyone's got something to say on it. And this year, I mean, we basically know what quarterback is. Not as much as we did a few months ago with Tyree Jackson being here instead of Derek Anderson. Um, I guess there is a question of whether Tyree Jackson makes the team. And I wonder even if he might have a shot to earn the backup job. Maybe. He does have a higher Madden rating than, uh, than Daniel Jones. But anyways... So that's there, but otherwise, like Allen's the starter, Barkley's the backup, and Tyree might make the team. That's pretty much all there is at, at quarterback. It's not a lot to chew on. But this is still going to be a really interesting training camp, I think. And part of it is, you know, defense, you, you like to have a good defense, but just inherently, I think everyone could agree, defense, you know, it's a little less interesting than offense, right? That's why fantasy football takes place with running backs, receivers, tight ends, and quarterbacks, and not linebackers and cornerbacks and safeties. And the Bills have their defense figured out. We, we know what's going on there. We know who the two safeties are. We know who the number one corner is. We know who the middle linebacker is. We know who the other two linebackers are. We know who's going to be starting at, uh, at, at defensive end. Jerry Hughes, at least one of them. Um, sure, there'll be maybe a competition between Trent Murphy and Shaq Lawson, but I expect we know their roles. They're going to split it if they're both here. Um, defensive tackle, like we know Ed Oliver is going to play. We know Starla Tule is going to play. Like there's not a lot to figure out there. Offense, on the other hand, which you know is the sexier side of the ball, everything's up for grabs. Everything's up in the air. There are a hundred guys up battling for spots. Receiver, there's six of them, or there's like ten receivers actually. To be honest, fighting for five or six jobs, you've got four running backs competing for maybe three spots. Or what should be three spots. You've got, who knows who's going to start a tight end. Who knows what the offensive line is going to look like. It's all up in the air. And that's all going to be figured out training camp and preseason. So, you know, there's a lot of times preseason is dry. And I'm expecting this one to be a little little better. Because I'm going to be watching to see Devin Singletary. Me especially. I want to see if he has that burst, that flash. That makes the Bills think, alright, you know what? Third round pick. Look at and think about the last ten third round pick running backs. They're half are great, and the ones who aren't great are still starters. Like it's a pretty good success rate picking a running back in the third round. Well, we got this guy, and look at him. He's tearing up the preseason. We got to get this guy in the field. Oh, but we have Gore and McCoy and Yeldon. Well, we got to get rid of one. Who's gonna be? Singletary can change that whole position this training camp and preseason. Receiver, all up in the air. Brown and Beasley will have their roles, but will they be bigger roles than the young guys? Will Zay Jones take a spot? Will, and I mean like a real spot, not like he, I think right now if I had to project where he ends up, he's the fourth receiver. If they go to a three receiver set, I don't think Zay Jones is on the field. I wouldn't have him on the field. I'd have Foster and Brown on the outside and Beasley in the slot. Zay Jones is only coming on the field for obvious passing situations if on the Bills. And that's kind of a minor role compared to what he's had. So he's going to be battling for that. Foster is not a a surefire starter yet. He's the guy I think I'm more optimistic on than any of them. He's got the higher ceiling than any of them because of his ability, his raw ability, and what he showed at the end of last year. He did more with his touches than any receiver in football. Any of them. And 
you know, he needs to fight for that spot still. Because it's a very small sample size. We we as Bills fans should know. We have seen guys come through these doors, play what play great for four games, and then disappear for time for the rest of time. That happens all the time. And maybe he could he could be that. You hope not. But he could be that. So that's interesting what's going to be the, the snap share receiver. And there's guys further down the roster that, you know what, I would like to see get a chance. This is why, to me, Zay Jones should not be a lock to make the roster. If Duke Williams shows up, these are all big Fs, but if Duke Williams shows up and is just amazing, he's winning jump balls, he's the guy that Allen's always looking to in the red zone, he's getting open downfield, He looks. you're, you're seeing him do stuff in the field, it's like, wow, that's why that guy was the number one receiver in the CFL last year. Well, whose spot does he take? He's not taking Beasley and Brown, they're locked in. I'm hoping Foster's not going to do, there's no way Foster's going to do poor enough, I think, to get cut. Whose spots he take? He's not playing special teams. He's not taking Andre Roberts' spot. Zay Jones makes the most sense there. Isaiah McKenzie. He played well last year. I'd like to see a way for him to make the team. He was the guy, and this is partially because of his style of player. I'd like to have a, a guy with his style. Smaller, super quick. You know, he's a returner, but I have Roberts for that, but... His asset as a returner is quickness in short spaces. And I don't, Beasley can do that, but do I, I'm thinking about like the reverses here. Like, why, be, there's a reason McKenzie was the guy that the Bills were always handing the ball off to on reverses because he has that, that after the catch ability. And he plays special teams too. So, like, I, I wouldn't be mad if he's on the team. I'd like to see him on the team. I liked him last year. That drive that Allen led against the Dolphins, that Clay ultimately drops the ball at the end. You know what? Looking back, fine, because they got Ed Oliver because of that. But look at that drive. I think he goes to McKenzie twice for two big plays on that drive. There's a catch he makes against the Jets. Where When I'm thinking about like what McKenzie is a player, I'm thinking, oh, he's limited. Like He's not a guy that can really go down the field and make tough catches. Like He's a guy you got to give it to on bubble screens and, and reverses and get him on the kick return game. But... There he was against the Jets. Allen put it behind him down the seams. I was right behind this play. I think it happened in like the second quarter. Allen drops back. He guns it down the middle, up the seams. It's behind McKenzie, which was actually good because if he put it in front of him, McKenzie was going to get lit up by the safety. He puts it behind McKenzie, who makes a great adjustment, jumps into the air, and makes the catch while he's twisting in the air. And he comes down with it. And right there, I saw a player, you know what, this guy's got some pretty good ability at catching the football. How does he make the team? If he makes it, someone's got to come off. They're not going to keep eight receivers. So that position's going to be available. That's why, by the way, I'm not, I just said this, but I'm not ready to say Zay Jones is an automatic lock. He's definitely likely to make the team. I'd probably say over 75%, but not a lock in my mind. So I'm interested to see what happens there. And then tight end. Which one of the rookies looks better? Does Dawson Knox really prove to be worth a third-round pick, even though he didn't have any college production? Kind of like Allen. He's the, he's the Josh Allen of tight ends. No college production, but he's big, he's athletic, he's fast, and there's reason to think that his college team didn't utilize him properly. So can he do that here? That's a big if. Croft, I'm not that excited about. He might not even be healthy. Lee Smith, 
I don't think there's an offensive player in in the world that I could be less excited about. He does his job. He's a blocker. Fine. I actually would like to see him be the fullback, and that would decrease the need for Pat DeMarco to be here, and then maybe you can move on from that. That's one less running back or one less back you have to have. Um, But tight end's interesting, too. So all of that put together, and then offensive line. There's like 100 guys that that could play on the offensive line. All that put together, I might be more enthusiastic for training camp coming up this year than last year. Because last year you had quarterback, but there was no expectations on the season. It was all about the quarterback, and everything else was just kind of like whatever happens, happens. Now, everything else does matter because expectations are raised, and you have all of these players battling for a few spots. And all of these players, you do have some reason to be optimistic for them. It's not like... Hey, they just have a bunch of guys and someone's got to fill the spot. No, like receiver. They have six or seven guys that you have reason to be optimistic for. Even the Duke Williams and the McKenzies and the Andre Roberts. Running back, you have you have four guys that you do have reason to be optimistic for. So that all together does make training camp, I think, uh, exciting when it happens in about a couple weeks. All right. Last call in the nightcap is next. Any final thoughts? You can get them in here. I'll uh, check to see if any more giant NBA news has dropped. Russell Westbrook traded to the Houston Rockets. If you missed that, Adrian Wojnarowski reporting that uh, the Thunder are sending Westbrook to the Rockets for Chris Paul, who might end up being a salary dump. or a uh, he, had, he had to be in that trade to make the salary work. But I don't know if the Thunder are going to look to keep him long term. Um, and then they also get Houston gets first-round picks. Or I'm sorry, Oklahoma City gets first-round picks in 2024 and 2026. Pick swaps in 2021, 2025. NBA trades can be very confusing, but all you need to know is Russell Westbrook is going to the Houston, Rock- Houston Rockets. 803-0550 is the phone number. If you got any last thoughts, last call in the nightcap is next here on WGR. All right, last call on the nightcap. Huge news in the NBA breaking in the last few minutes. Russell Westbrook is now a Houston Rocket. Chris Paul is now a Oklahoma City Thunder. Does that work? He's a Thunder. He's a member of the Thunder. He's a Thunderite. No, none of that works. Um, Man, poor, poor, poor Oklahoma City Thunder fans. I mean... I don't want to feel too bad for them because they got a team and they're not a big market. It's amazing they got one in the first place. But to have three guys who at one point, you could still even argue, three guys are all top ten players in the league and have been, and you drafted them. You had, how many Hall of Fame players have they had in the last ten years? Durant, Harden, Westbrook, Paul George, Carmelo Anthony, Victor Oladipo maybe. He's more of like an all-star. I don't know if he'll ever get there, but he's great and he's young. That's six guys that are all going to have great careers if they haven't had one already. No titles. That's amazing. It's, it's, oh, it's amazing that that team... Ended up with no titles. And that kind of sucks for those fans. And they're all gone. All of them. Imagine if the Sabres... Or imagine if... Yeah, imagine if the Sabres... Imagine if Reinhardt becomes a 90-point player. Imagine if... You know... Middlestat becomes a 100-point player. 
and you've got five guys on your team that are all superstars. Eichel, Dahlin, Middlestat, Reinhardt. These, these guys all become just amazing, like stars in the league. And you have them all at once, which is amazing. And then all but one go somewhere else, and they, they start doing amazing things other places. On their own, as the best player on their teams. That's what Thunder fans are going through right now. They, at one point, had the best player in the Warriors, or the Nets, I should say now, the best player in the Rockets, the best player on the Thunder, the best player on the Pacers, the second best player in the Clippers, I guess, Paul George, and nothing. One title appearance, and they got rolled by the Heat. So that sucks for them. It really does. What a list, though. That's kind of it, though, for the NBA offseason now. The NHL is going to be the one that's interesting now because we still got stuff to do with the Sabres. Um, there's really nothing else to happen in the NBA. All the big dominoes have dropped for agency-wise. I don't really think there's another big name that's available in trade talks. The NHL still got Marner stuff going on, all these restricted free agents. Who knows what's going to happen? Is Montreal ready to do another offer sheet? They sound like they're going to. I think they're going to. If not the Islanders doing it to Marner. Someone's going to do... I, I bet you we get one more. I'd probably want odds. I think I'd definitely want odds, but I, I think we get one more. One more offer sheet. And yeah, NBA, like, I, I can't think of who else is like a big name that could be traded. I don't think there is a guy. Kevin Love in Cleveland, maybe? I don't know. There's really, there really isn't that guy, to be honest. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening to the show tonight. We are closing in on Bill's training camp, so there will be a lot more football coming your way in the coming weeks. And uh, unless, of course, the Sabres want to throw over the line and trade our way, which is, would always be uh, a, a cool thing to talk about and to be excited about. So we'll see. Catch the whole show on demand at WGR550.com and the radio com app. I'll be with you guys tomorrow starting at 7 o'clock for a full show but until then, have a good night. This has been the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase here on WGR. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.